two patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. In our book, we outline the tragic case of Alexis Ochoa, a 19-year-old woman who died when a nurse practitioner failed to properly diagnose and treat the blood clot in her lungs. The only reason the details of the case became public was because of a lawsuit filed by the patient's family. Court records revealed not only a lack of appropriate medical care, but more importantly, the incredible efforts that Mercy Health Systems, a multi-billion dollar corporation, routinely went through to hire and credential nurse practitioners to work in positions completely outside of their scope of practice, putting patients at risk to save money and increase profits. Today, we are going to talk with attorney Robert Painter about the role of the legal system in holding bad actors like this accountable. Mr. Painter is a former hospital administrator who is now a medical malpractice and wrongful death lawyer at Painter Law Firm in Houston, Texas. Mr. Painter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Robert, I was reviewing your website, and you really seem to have a unique perspective on nurse practitioner malpractice that not all plaintiffs' attorneys, let alone patients, really understand. Tell us how you got interested in nurse practitioner malpractice. Well, so I've seen, you know, from the perspective of being a a hospital administrator for a little while in the 90s and seeing the rise of of what we called back then, I guess it's not politically correct now, but (laughs) mid-levels, and uh, you see the the rise of mid-levels, which you know, from my perspective, really came about because hospitals and bean counters wanted to increase profitability. And what we've seen then is is these lobbying organizations really coming about trying to take the mid-level and just delete the mid and make it level with physicians who have the, the higher level of care. So what I started seeing, you know, really after going to law school and then starting on the defense side, just defending hospitals and medical schools and providers, and then since 06 being on the plaintiff side, the patient side, is uh, seeing the role of these uh, mid-level providers, whether it's nurse practitioners or physician assistants, just really getting increasing roles and responsibility without that commensurate education. And there's so many cases where I've seen this that I started really noticing this and and wanted to get more up to speed to be able to prepare it uh, or to be able to prepare and and, uh, represent my clients. In fact, just uh, I have a couple of examples of cases I'm working on right now, one with a nurse practitioner, one with a physician assistant, many, many with CRNAs that that we could talk about. But uh, you you just start to see once you are in tune to this, you see the same issues over and over. What do you think if, I mean, I guess after doing it on the plaintiff's side, what do you think is some of the answers, I guess, you know, part of the reason we wrote the book and people are always surprised about this, especially physicians is I always say, look, I'm on the side of the patient. This book was written for patients because I feel like it's my contribution to try to educate them. So I guess from your perspective, cases you've done, what is the answer? What can we do to help patients more? Well, you know, I, I think I appreciate the comment of saying you're on the side of, of the patients because I really believe that, I mean, I've yet, maybe there might be one person <laughs> that I've encountered over, you know, 20 plus years in healthcare, and that was Dr. Death, because uh, I handled <laughs> one of the cases against uh, Dr. Donch up in Dallas, you know, which was the subject of the Dr. Death series and all that. But anyway, you know, setting that one aside, pretty much everyone 
really everyone who goes into medicine, everyone who goes into to any of these uh, healthcare fields does so to help patients. Mm-hmm. And with what I've seen, you know, from my perspective is, is just there are more and more demands on, on physicians and, and healthcare providers. And sometimes the person who gets lost in the mix of the healthcare team is really the most important member, which is the patient. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the intro in your book about the nurse practitioner is, you know what, without a lawsuit, the truth about this nurse practitioner and that type of the, the facts surrounding that are, are uh, would be would be shielded. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's exactly how, you know, for example, in the case of in Dallas with uh, Dr. Dunch, Dr. Dunn, that's how those cases came about because there are so many privileges with hospitals about how credentialing is done, how hiring and, and the peer review process and the, the hospital committee process is, is shielded from public view that really without litigation and, 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 so, and even then it's tough, you know, uh, these, these facts don't come out. So even though I, I, have, uh, I handle health liability claims for patients, I really view doctors, hospitals, those who have the, the best interest of, of, of patients in mind, it really is allies rather than, than adversaries philosophically. You mentioned that you see some of the same things over and over again. Can you talk about what some of those issues are? Well, in terms of nurse practitioners and physician assistants, I'll throw in also certified registered nurse anesthetists, which are also these uh, advanced practice nurses, uh, similar to nurse practitioners, is you see really, in my view, these mid-level providers, I'll still refer to them as that, as uh, having a shocking degree of autonomy without training, without proper training. And, and you know, I, I was just looking up one today we're working on in a case up in, uh, well, a Texas case. And we're looking into this situation where you have a, a nurse practitioner who uh, makes an entry in a medical record as an intensivist. Now, that's pretty interesting to me to say you have a nurse practitioner intensivist. An intensivist, by definition, is, is a critical care specialist who really has extensive training on treating the most acutely or chronically ill patients. And needless to say, in that case, the nurse practitioner intensivist blew it and, and saw a patient who was really, really acutely ill. And just within minutes of her evaluation of the patient in the emergency room, uh, he had a, an arrest and, and was resuscitated, but was left with a permanent brain injury. That situation, you start looking into, I could go over and over and over on it, but you start looking into the backgrounds and the training of what qualified this person to be a, an intensivist, you know, the person who's seeing a really ill person, so ill that an emergency room physician is ordering in consultation with, uh, with the ICU and ICU admission. What qualifies that nurse practitioner? Well, this one in particular had an online degree. So you look at a for-profit online degree and, you know, you look at, you start digging into it and seeing, well, what exactly qualifies this person? It's unclear that there was much of any clinical emphasis at all. And you see that over and over. There's another case uh, that, that it, to go over to the physician assistant side of a physician assistant who was tasked to see neurosurgery consults at a, at a level one trauma center. <laughs> so you have a guy that is that hits a tree at 65 miles an hour head on 
spine surgery is consulted and a PA shows up. I deposed the PA and her level of supervision by the, the neurosurgery, the rather the spine surgery service was exclusively through text messaging. Would you want to have, if, if it's you or your loved one <laughs> in a hospital that has a, a loss of sensation and extremities that's slowly moving upward, they finally get a spine surgeon consult and you have a PA show up who's texting the spine surgeon. No way. And we see that though over and over and over again. So I guess my question, you know, it's interesting. I just had to renew my hospital. I'm on staff with a number of hospitals, the children's hospitals. And I got this funny email recently about, well, you haven't admitted enough patients to our hospital. And so because of that, you know, you can't, have privileges. And of course, I called and explained that I would be calling a lawyer. And I just wanted to find out why after 20 years, this is a a kind of a new thing. And within a couple hours, you know, they called me back and said, oops, it was a big mistake. You know, you're good. Everything's (laughs) great. So I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is they have all these kind of funny esoteric things they want to do to doctors, you know, gosh, I'm not admitting enough patients during COVID, which I, okay. And so it's a question. So, so my question is how does, like, I couldn't get neurosurgery privileges, right? I couldn't get intensivist privileges and I'm not complaining about that. But my question is, how does the PA get intensivist privileges? How did they, how did they allow this? Or because I I guess I don't even understand. I, 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 how? (laughs) I don't really have any clue, you know, from a, again, from a background as a former hospital administrator, I don't know how we got to this place other than, you know, you could look at it and analogize it to there's a problem in medicine when you have administrators who aren't physicians <laughs> making calls on the way medicine is practiced, just the same way when you have judges who aren't trained in, in medicine, science, statistics, or anything, making these, these determinations on, uh, on a, and a lot of things. And we can talk about that later. But, you know, I, I think what, what happens is this, is it goes back to, is you're saying, hey, the, the credentialing uh, or recredentialing for physicians, the process of how do you get permission to practice at a hospital, they look at you not really as independent physician with independent duties to the, the, the patient, but they look at you as a revenue center. If you aren't generating enough revenue, then what's the problem? You know, and, and I think when you look at it really with, with the mid-levels is mid-levels, which used to be called another term was physician extenders, is they were a way to uh, basically allow physicians in theory to be able to see a lot more patients. And I think what they're doing is it's really hard to rationalize how this makes sense in terms of patient care, because, you know, in my view, the solution is you, uh, you put more qualified physicians on the medical staff, then you can use the mid-levels to, uh, to handle things to assist uh, under appropriate supervision. But what they've done is, is just in a way they're, they're looking at to the hospital there's a lower overhead, a lower expense to have a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. And then if you have them having independent practice authority, they can order all the tests and all the, the, the you know, diagnostic imaging, lab work, and all the other things that uh, end up making the hospital a lot of money. And I think that's really the answer. It's a, it's a financial driven decision. What I expect is, uh, you know, it, it seems like there are these trends that happen in healthcare and and uh, they'll last 10 years and, and then uh, you, you figure out it doesn't work and then you go back to it. But the problem is in this one, 
it's to me an existential crisis because it's demoralizing to physicians. And I think you, you know, you don't have to go much farther than uh, than med Twitter just to see the type of therapeutic venting that goes on there of, of things that you know. What are we doing here? You know, and and I I really feel bad about that. You know, you mentioned lower overhead, and one of the elements of that is that nurse practitioners ha- typically have much lower malpractice coverage, and their malpractice tends to be much less expensive. Do you find that it's more difficult to get your clients justice if they've been harmed by a mid-level practitioner because of those limitations? Well, so in general, what I, I can comment on that from a Texas perspective, because uh, most of my cases are in Texas. And one of the things that, that I would even say, uh, you know, without delving into that third rail of vaccines and COVID, but even the, the federal, uh, the, the feds, you know, President Biden and and other policymakers at the national level would be well advised to remember that health law policy is really a state law consideration. It's not a federal thing. It's reserved to the states. Well, you know, in some ways in, in pandemics, it would be convenient to have a national policy. But, you know, in general, uh, you have 50 states with 50 different sets of laws. It's like, for example, in Texas, really the, the coverage of mid-levels is not really that different from physicians. So part of that could be tort reform informed. Part of it is really practice area dependent. But one of the things that I think has been mucked up in some jurisdictions is what exactly is the responsibility of a mid-level provider when something goes wrong? Now, typically what I've encountered in I could give examples of many, many, many anesthesia cases where you have physician anesthesiologists who have extensive anesthesia and critical care training. And then you have certified registered nurse anesthetists who are mid-level providers who have a lot less training. Usually when there's a case where there's an adverse outcome that we think is related to negligence, we'll name both the anesthesiologist and the, the CRNA. They're usually employed by the same practice group and they usually have the same insurance. In most cases, Almost all the cases, though, what you read on Twitter or LinkedIn about how brilliant and and, uh, capable the CRNAs are evaporates very quickly when you depose them, because then it's a matter of, uh, I was depending on an anesthesiologist. Although occasionally you'll get some that'll stick with it. But in terms of the coverage, I think there's something that you have to look at with nurse practitioners and CRNAs, people like that, because they come from really a different it's an odd position. It's really an odd creation of law where you have people who are really being allowed to practice medicine at some level who have no medical training whatsoever. They come from a different, an entirely different discipline, a nursing discipline. And uh, I know you all know that very well, but a lot of people don't, a lot of judges, a lot of attorneys don't understand it. Under Texas law, for example, the Board of Nursing is very clear in regulating nurse practitioners, that there are some functions that nurse practitioners do that are nursing functions. There are some functions that are medical functions. And so in the cases that I handle involving nurse practitioners, I'm very careful with the experts that we use to delineate which is which, because that's really an important distinction. 
Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think, like you said, it's state dependent and Washington's a great example. You know, um, nurse practitioners are pretty much independently working. Actually, they are. They're fully independent. And so, so many people bring up to us this, this fact that when they are practicing nursing, so, so many of the nurse practitioners are just simply practicing nursing versus the doctors are simply practicing medicine. And so there's this idea, and I know we've, we've listed a few of the cases, you know, I think it's Kaiser and then there's the Lattimore versus Dickey case. Those aren't in Washington per se, but this idea that nurse practitioners, you know, you have to use an expert that's a nurse practitioner to testify against standard of care for a nurse practitioner and vice versa, a physician against a physician. And we're seeing some of these cases where that's not true. Can you talk a little bit more about that just as a general rule? Because people will at first say you can't testify against a nurse practitioner. And I'm finding in some of the legal work I'm doing that actually there's a number of ways you can talk about it because they're doing my job, for example. Yeah. And if you're serving as a pediatrician, you know, that difference. Well, it's a great point. So my, uh, the way this is a typical lawyer answer, well, it really depends, right? So, and where you look at it and whatever state you're dealing with, you know, for example, as an expert witness, the lawyer, the the, uh, physician expert would need to look at what does the law say? So what I would look at, and any time that I uh, I look at, you know, for example, just yesterday uh, or I mean Friday today, I was working on a case involving a nurse practitioner. That nurse practitioner who um, was a, an intensivist, and but was not really. Anyway, it's a whole different story. But I go back and look at it. I re-review. What does the nursing board say? In, in, in this in this case, it's Texas. So I look at it. What does it say? And then what you want to do is you look at what you need to do to qualify an expert to testify as to the standard of care that's really the the board of the standard of care are set by the licensing agency. So for a nurse practitioner, it would be the in Texas, the, the board of nursing for a physician assistant in Texas would be the medical board. And you look at what it is. Now, in Texas, we have kind of a, a bifurcated system where you have to have initial reports that kind of are threshold reports that define the standard of care that determine that just gives fair notice to the other side what's going on and then satisfies the court that the claim has merit. Those are very regulated. Once you pass that hurdle, you go in and you have your your full case. Some of the cases that you, you sent over were those initial threshold reports. And one of the things is that you, you look again at the statute. Each state regulates what's an expert. In Texas, you look exactly at the statute and what does the statute say? So our statute says, which is uh, Civil Practice Remedies Code Section 74, in terms of looking at, at who qualifies as an expert sections for uh, physicians and healthcare providers. So it's interesting right there. In my book, it's a no-no to call a physician a healthcare provider. You aren't a provider, you're a physician. Okay, so there's, that's, that's a different thing, right? Okay, there's a separate section for other people who are non-physicians. They're called providers, okay? So you look at it, and in our law, to testify against a physician, you have to be a physician. Okay, it reminds me of the old Sesame Street things, the boxes, Things that are different aren't the same. Which one of these is different? Okay, so yes, the nurse practitioner, yes, the PA, yes, the CRNA, they can do some things, but you don't get to testify against a physician under Texas law, period. Okay, second thing, you don't get to testify as to causation. In other words, you can't say what error occurred and what caused harm. 
aren't allowed to do it. Okay, you go to the statute though about healthcare providers and it's kind of interesting. And there's actually one of the cases that you emailed about or we discussed is the Simonson case. And there's a later case that's called San Jacinto Methodist Hospital versus Bennett. And it's a 2008 case out of Houston's 14th Court of Appeals. I love this case because, uh, you know, I use it a lot. And it's a case that, that explains why under the law, a properly written report from a physician can provide opinions as to the standard of care for a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. And again, it gets back to looking at exactly what the licensing authorities say. Nurses, advanced practice nurses, they practice primarily nursing, not medicine. Under Texas law, they're allowed to perform certain tasks that have to really be policed in written agreements of supervision from a physician. The same is true for physician assistants. And so you look at it, and the question is, again, under Texas law, and it varies by state, the question is, under Texas law, when there's an opinion as to a healthcare provider, you could have that opinion on standard of care come from another healthcare provider, i.e. a non-physician, or you can have it from a physician who's familiar with the, those same issues that are at play in the case. So like in this Methodist, uh, San Jacinto Methodist versus Bennett case, what the court said is uh, the expert report there, who was a physician, internist. <laughs> and uh, what the uh, Court of Appeals said, well, of course, the internist physician's report comes flat out and says that he's responsible for, in this case, uh, it was a decubitus or pressure ulcer uh, case, that of course he understands what the standard of care is for a nurse practitioner for a physician assistant to care for those. So he has that expertise and the court said, of course, yeah, it, it flies. So absolutely you can do it. But in each state, there's going to be, uh, there will be different authorities and you have to start with it and, and say, well, what does the licensing authority say? Uh, what are PAs, what are nurse practitioners allowed to do? And then what is the definition of an expert? So without those definitions, you, you can't really say. Robert, have you represented anyone in a state where nurse practitioners have independent practice or full practice authority? I'm just wondering how that plays out as far as the medical legal issues and responsibilities. I cannot think uh, I cannot think of a case now where there was a mid-level in a, in a state you know outside of Texas. We've, we've had a number of cases with hospitals and, and you know regular RNs and physicians, but I can't think of, of that. Now, again, though, what you look at it, though, in any state, what you want to have is an attorney who's experienced in handling health litigation claims, which is very different because the types of experts that you need will be different. If I were looking, for example, in Washington State, which is one of those unfortunate places that have uh, you know unlimited mid-level authority. So anyway, you have this this growing trend. What what I would look at it there is, you know, there has to be a definition. There's a licensing authority that says what those mid-levels are allowed to do. Again, as incredible as it is to me, even in a state like Texas, which limits nurse practitioners, you have a nursing board granting authority to a non- 
physician, someone with no medical training whatsoever, to practice medicine within a box. It really doesn't make any sense. But you have to look at what that says. Under Washington law, we would look at those rules and, and regulations and see what's allowed. And then I, I, I still think that uh, there would be an argument to be made that, you know, in, in terms of looking at a, well, like, for example, this, this pressure sore case, the type of argument that I use in, in appellate courts or, or in trial courts, really, that, that wins invariably is... Uh, there's a standard of care that's substantially developed among different disciplines. So uh, that could be there, you know, there are some areas that you think about it, for example, in, in using the COVID situation, you're going to have ER physicians, uh, pulmonologists, critical care physicians, mid-levels that in certain issues are going to follow the same, same standard of care. Now you're going to have more advanced people that have a higher level, but there's going to be that overlapping thing. So in the expert the experts that I work with, I encourage inclusion of language in the reports of things like this. Well, if they're giving an opinion, for example, on a nurse practitioner, the standard of care on the specific issue in this case is substantially developed in the field of whatever my medical specialty is, plus nurse practitioner or PA uh, training for this particular type. And, uh, and that works. So if I were to look, though, at a case in Washington, again, the way I would look at it is I would go straight to, uh, if it's a nurse practitioner case, go to the Board of Nursing Rules. You look at it, and, and that's how you have to thread that needle. But it's very always a, a very careful thing. You mentioned how basically this is a, a license that's been granted to practice medicine to nurses by legislators. And I've had physicians come up to me and say, why can't we just sue the legislators for allowing this to happen? Is that completely outlandish? Is there any kind of role for action like that? Uh, well, it's it's not <laughs> it's probably not any more outlandish than letting nurse practitioners practice medicine. But it just really though it's not allowed. You know, the the legislators have their legislative immunity. What is allowed is to replace those legislators with with people that are more informed. Have you ever thought also about this? Uh, contradiction or, or, or a paradox in, in the arguments that a physician cannot testify as the standard of care of a nurse practitioner who is practicing, think about that, practicing to a degree medicine. And I'm allowed to do that, but a physician who is really practicing medicine is not allowed by law to testify as to my standard of care. I mean, it's, a, it's an absurd proposition. And I think these really need to be challenged and pushed back. And, and I'll tell you another thing, really, that I would encourage in terms of, of physicians is carefully about the supervision you're given, you're giving, you know, because it's uh, under these. Well, for example, in Texas, it would and I'm not I'm not trying to be completely anti mid-level because they have a role with supervision. But if you look at the unfettered practice of medicine by people who are not physicians. In a state like Texas, it could end tomorrow if all physicians just terminated the supervision agreements. So you don't have to do that. Now, of course, then the mid-levels may go to the legislature and say, well, give us, <laughs> you know, uh, let's let's adopt the Washington model. And I, think, I don't think politically that would fly in Texas, but uh, these are some things that, you know, we didn't get in any of these jurisdictions. You didn't get there overnight. It was a gradual erosion. 
And my question was going to sort of be about what, what do you say to people who probably have lumped you in with many of us that are told that we're anti-mid-level or we're jealous or, I mean, you name it, you know, our egos are hurt or they're, they're uh, I think the AANP said that our book, we, we were mad that we were losing money. I mean, they'll come up with anything instead of patient safety, of course, which is our, our number one priority. So, uh, you know, what do you say to those who just say, well, you're just a lawyer who hates nurse practitioners and, and, and that's it. You must have doctors in your family and you're against them losing their, their piece of the pie. Well, it's, it's always funny because every time uh, I write an article on that, that touches on a mid-level issue, I get hate mail, you know, from the nurse practitioners or or whomever. It's, actually, the CRNAs are the most vicious, but but and usually my response is just to write another article about you know the topic. And but I, I think that the the solution to misinformation is more correct information. But as I you know as always when I engage with them, which I really don't do that often. But uh, what I would say is this, you can look at it as we look at cases, uh, meaning my, in my profession, I look at cases, our office looks at cases based on patient safety lapses. And sometimes those are physician cases. Sometimes they're mid-level, sometimes they're hospital, what I would call system cases. And wherever the truth is, is where we go. And so uh, I don't have a practice that's limited to mid-levels. I think that mid-level, what I, I guess the, the phrase that I like for it is scope creep and the scope of, uh, you know, in, in my preference, I think the best model for patient safety is to have mid-levels as physician extenders to help on the lower acuity type things. But as scope creep happens and you have more autonomy of people with less training, it's bad for patients. And you're going to see it over and over and over. Uh, you're going to see these bad outcomes. And, uh, you know, so what I tell people when they, they, you know, usually what I'll get in the hate mail from uh, after speaking or giving an article, writing an article or something about it is, uh, well, you must, you know, you, you have a, a, something against a mid-level. So we'll just look at the suits that we file. We sue, you know, a, you know, a wide variety of cases of hospitals, physicians, whomever, it's not saying these are terrible people, but it's just, uh, it's about patient safety. I think we will see uh, in the next 10 years, uh, a lot more suits against mid-levels because you're going to see, you see more and more autonomy. What I always challenge with mid-levels who, who come to me with, because they typically have studies that say, you know, like, for example, the CRNAs, they'll, I'll see this. Well, we've done these studies where CRNA care is actually not equal to, but better than physician anesthesiology care. I said, well, really, who wrote the study? Well, lo and behold, it was the CRNA Association. Okay, let's get let's get real here, you know? And uh, those, those type of situations are kind of amusing to me. In our last few minutes, just wondering, what advice do you have for physicians to be able to work together with our attorney colleagues to help our patients get justice? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's uh, important is, to be informed about what's going on in your state legislatures and, and, and speaking up about it. You know, physicians still have a lot of respect in, in state legislatures. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this as, as you know, someone who comes from former healthcare background, working with a lot of physicians, having a lot of doctor friends, doctors are notoriously ill-informed about what's going on politically. And really, it's uh, until it bites them. 
And so you want to stay out ahead of it. And I also encourage uh, physicians to, um, in terms of patient safety, and I wrote about today about uh, a, a case up at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center where there was a whistleblower uh, who was a physician on the medical staff there who, who revealed some really alarming things that were going on in, in uh, patient surgery scheduling. And the U.S. government ended up intervening in the lawsuit there, and it's a very serious matter. So what I would say is this, there are things that physicians have a unique perspective to see. And if you see something that's against patient care, speak up. That's actually what, like in the doctor death case, what led to, to that getting to the medical board is a physician in the operating room saw a surgeon and he felt this guy's skills are so unskilled, he can't even be real. Well, maybe that's something that physicians, rather than just ranting on Twitter, could speak up and do something about. And the same goes true with a physician, assistant, nurse practitioner supervision. When you see it, speak up, do something about it. Thank you so much. I want to thank our guest, Robert Painter. We'll have the link to his uh, law firm in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about this issue, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at amazon.com and at Barnes and Noble. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician, we'd love for you to join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. Thanks so much. We'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.